On this episode of This Week in Linux, we'll talk about some big releases from the GNOME desktop environment, Sway Window Manager, distro releases from Laka, Nopix, and UbiPort's Ubuntu Touch. I've got a couple announcements for this show, Tux Digital, and a Linux conference I'll be attending, so be sure to check out that segment. We'll also check out some new releases from Audacity, Mesa Drivers, Network Manager, TLP Project, and more. We'll also look at a new file sharing service provided by Mozilla, and then we'll discuss some news from the Linux Foundation, Debian, and Humble Bundle. Later in the show, I'll issue a correction for a topic we discussed last week, and a lot more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, load balancers, integrated firewalls, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also offers 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. You can use this $100 credit to try out a bunch of their small droplets or even some of their big beast droplets. Uh, you can even try out uh, for a test run their 16 gig RAM, six virtual CPU droplet with, that has six terabytes of transfer. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up first in the show, GNOME 3.32 has been released, and this includes a ton of new features and enhancements. This release has been focused heavily on performance improvements for the GNOME shell, the, uh, the Mutter window manager, and many other things that are related to the architecture of the system. In addition to the performance improvements, there's also a, a lot of uh, new features, like, for example, fractional scaling is now available in the GNOME shell. So if you're not aware what fractional scaling is, that is the ability to have multiple different types of um, high-res displays that not, not necessarily uh, going through... Well, basically, when you, when you have a high-definition display, it's not likely to be double the size of what the regular pixel split displays are. It's usually somewhere in between 1 to 2 times. Um, it's usually like 1.5, 1.6, or 1.7. So... Previously, you could only do one times or two times increase for that for that that scaling, which made it a little bit weird and awkward. Uh, this they have now added fractional scaling so that you can do a more uh, specific resolution to or scaling resolution to whatever your uh, monitor actually uses. So that's nice to see. Uh, unfortunately, it's not enabled by default for people who are not who are using Xorg. It's it's only available. Um, for Wayland by default, but you can go in and manually enable it if you need to. So they've also done some cool things with this new app uh, app control permissions settings. So you can go into the settings applications panel, and there's an application uh, permission structure that allows you to uh, change the settings and permissions for uh, various different apps as well, including flat packs. And these allow you to uh, toggle switches on and off to control whether an application has support for or access to uh, the f microphone or the camera and even uh, specific USB devices. They also are working on uh, adding some more functionality to that so that more permissions can be uh, displayed like in future releases for like say contacts or calendar data or something. But you know that's that's a really cool idea. I really like the tailored uh, permission structure. Kind of like how some mobile devices have it as well. Uh, another thing that they did was they made a new icon set and they've improved the Edwada, Edwada theme uh, for the interface to look a more modern and overall like just more polished. Uh, the icon set is actually quite nice in comparison to what they had. Uh, there's still It still has some consistency issues as far as like the shapes are all different and there's really no consistent uh, design approach it looks like. However, it is much better than what it used to have. Gnome's icons used to be just awful. And now they're pretty good. So I, I, I applaud them for doing that, recognizing the problem and addressing it. So that's cool. Uh, one of the things that is interesting is that they also decided to remove the application menu that's in uh, various different applications. So 
if you're not aware, there's this term called application menu. And to be fair, most, a lo not most, but a lot of different projects have this weird thing of you like term creating a term that is so generic, it doesn't specify anything. So it sounds like that they're getting rid of something important like an application menu. But really, this is a menu that's at the top of the panel in the GNOME shell that when you open an application, it shows the name of the uh, application. And then it has a little arrow that you can click and have more options in this little drop-down menu. Now, that's actually not that big of a deal because a lot of people didn't even know it existed, much less used it. So uh, developers also didn't use it most of the time. So there's occasionally you'd find some features in there every once in a while, but most of the time you just see like an about or a help section there. So most of the time people didn't bother to try it because there's nothing in it. But they've decided to get rid of that and now integrate the application menu inside of the uh, the, the toolkit for the like an in-app menu instead, which is probably a better thing to do anyway. Uh, so this is pretty good overall because it makes it more consolidated into the application and instead of having it separated. Now global menus are really cool because it's more obvious when in this case it wasn't that obvious. So it's not a big it's not a, as big a deal as it might seem to be removing application menus. This is just the weirdly named term for that feature. But anyway, they've also improved a lot of performance for uh, the GNOME software and also being able to uh, have better mounting for Google Drive and some other things. So overall, this is a nice uh, update to see that they're coming out with the, the newest version and fixing a lot of these issues that are that are, have been around for uh, gnomes in the past, gnome shell in the past. So really cool to see. Uh, if you're interested in checking it out, it's not necessarily available right. I mean the the software is released, but not many distros have access to use it right now. There are other there are distros that are that do have it, like rolling release distros like uh, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed or Arch. Those have access to use it, but if you're using something else like a more stable release candidate system, you're going to have to uh, wait a little bit, probably a couple months or so. Or in the case of like Ubuntu, I think like a month. That's just how typically how DEs work in the sense of like the new the new software for DEs takes a little bit of time to get access to them um, for the most part. Sometimes not so much, but for the most part, that's true. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about GNOME 3.32, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is Sway 1.0 has been released. Sway is the window manager for Wayland that is similar to i3. So basically they took the ideas from i3 that they loved and then moved it over to a Wayland support because the i3 team decided they didn't want to port it to Wayland. Um, so Sway is, in, is the window manager to facilitate that porting to Wayland. And this is the 1.0 version, so it's got a lot of uh, updates and a lot of uh, performance and bug fixes and stability fixes and all kinds of stuff from the previous versions. So what's really cool is that it shows the amount of work that's been put into this because it's a 1.0 and they have almost 100,000 lines of code with from 9,000 commits or over 9,000 commits from like 300 people working on this project in like a big collaborative effort, which is really cool. And another benefit is that because they're working in this collaborative effort, they've taken some of their work and moved it to other pieces like the WXL roots um, project to improve other window managers using Wayland. So that is very cool to see because they, the collaboration is very important and I really like to see those kind of things. And I think it's like five or six different window managers for Wayland are collaborating to make that library. So that's very cool. And they've also made some releases of new features for this release include a new screenshot tool, a new notification daemon, uh, a new video capture tool, a new on-screen keyboard, and also an X-Clip replacement so you can have a custom clipboard. I'm uh, pretty sure it's a clipboard manager as well. And uh, they've been doing a lot of interesting things as far as improving the polish and the experience of using Sway. Uh, and Sway uh, also has, I think it's at 100%. It might be like 99.999% or something. There might be like one or two things, but I think it's for the most part like 100% compatible with i3 configs. So if you were using i3, you could easily switch over to Sway. So that's very cool. And the developers of the Sway project said this for in their release. They say that 1.0 improves performance in every respect, 
offers a more faithful implementation of Wayland and exists as a positive political force in the Wayland ecosystem, pushing for standardization and cooperation among Wayland projects, which is re referencing the part about uh, their collaborative efforts for like WXL Roots and etc. So this is really cool. And uh, if you'd like to check it out, I'll have a link to it in the show notes uh, for this particular release for Sway 1.0. Up next in the show is the latest release from the Solus team, which is Solus 4 or Fortitude. I wish you actually would have spelled it with the F-O-U-R, Fortitude, with a pun. Anyway, so the Solus team has announced the immediate release of Solus 4, and this release uh, brings some brand new uh, budgie experiences. Uh, it has a new updates to their default applications, their theming. They added hardware enablement, which is awesome. So spe some specific improvements are they've updated the kernel to 4.20.16, which offers support for a range of AMD GPU improvements and also supports the improvements to the Intel Coffee Lake and Ice Lake CPUs, along with some additional hardware support. Uh, the software center has refinements and fixes ahead of the planned rewrite of the, the system. They've also, or for the software center, I mean, uh, the Budgie 10.5 has, uh, uh, has been included in this release, as well as a new theme where the, is called the uh, Plata Noir. I don't know if that's right, but it's a GTK theme, and it's a really nice-looking theme. Uh, hopefully, I said it close to being accurate. Uh, they've also done some improvements to the Budgie menu, a new caffeine mode applet, a, uh, an, an icon for the task list applet, and improved app detection for grouping. They've also made some improvements to the Raven widget and the notification center uh, has enhancements for that. Um, finally, they've the team has made improvements to the uh, desktop flavors, so they've made improvements to GNOME, Mate, and Plasma. Uh, supposedly, the, the next release of uh, 4.1 will have a release of a full... Uh, stable release for the Plasma version. Uh, currently, it's still in testing phase, but either way, it's, you know, if you're interested in checking it out, we can have a, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But Solus 4 has even more tweaks and improvements under the hood. So if you want to find out more, you can go check out the Solus website to see all of them for yourself. And it's, you know, it's great to see that the work that the Solus team has been, uh, you know, they've been doing, working for the past year or so to finally come to fruition because it's, you know, like there's a lot of stuff in here that's really cool to see. And also, um, I'm glad to see that they have the uh, new ISO refresh for all the packages. You know, it's a rolling release if you've never tried it out. Um, the distro is a rolling release, so you even if you had installed an older version from the ISO, it would have updated the packages, you know, anyway. But it's always nice to see ISO refreshes because it makes it, uh, it, it shows an experience to the new user that it has better support for their hardware when they have newer packages and also makes it somewhat easier to install uh, packages so you don't have to update literally everything. So that's great. If you want to find out more about Solus 4, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show, Mozilla has announced their new Firefox Send service. Now this service has actually been around for a little bit, but it's new in how they've uh, made some adjustments and they've also like sent it out to everyone mainstream. It was originally a part of the test pilot program, so you could have used it for probably a few months or so, and I've been using it you know, since they started doing the test pilot, but this latest release for the new full release is actually much better than the test pilot version, so that's awesome, so I'm happy to see the test pilot did work out. Uh, but anyway, so this, this release is a service for sharing files back and forth. What's really cool is that the files are in, in encrypted. So when you send the files to them, it is encrypted uh, and not accessible from anyone without a link. And it's also easily accessible with the link, which is great. So if you have uh, a file to send, like for example, you wanna send an email and you try to attach a file in that email, you might have an experience where the pro the file is too big, which if you're not aware, 25 megabytes is the maximum size an email will allow for an attachment. And uh, sometimes you might wanna send a bigger file. Now, that's really cool is that by default, the service for Firefox Send allows you to send up to one gigabyte files. Now, this is just if you don't have an account. If you wanted to get an account on the service, you can get up to 2.5 gigs instead of the one. Uh, one is for just anyone to use it for whatever. So the, the service is very easy to use. You just go to the site and you click the button to upload or do the drag and drop of files onto the page. 
and then it will generate a URL for you to share to someone. Now, this uh, you can also limit the amount of downloads or the amount of time it is available to download. So it used to be when they first made the service, it was one download or one day access. Now they've made it so you can have up to 100 downloads or up to seven days access. Now this is still a, a cool service because it means that it's not always there. So it's a temporary file sharing thing, which makes it sustainable for them to, be, to create the service itself because they're not reliant, like trying to provide you know access to anything. So, um, it's a really cool idea because if you want to send an email, um, instead of doing uh, trying to attach the file, you just go to Firefox or send.firefox.com and then upload the file there. It gives you a link. You put the link in your email and you're good to go. No worries. Now, it's actually kind of interesting because I used to do uh, uploads to my own server and then give links to the server and then I have to go back and, down and delete the file from the server once it's already been downloaded. So it was just a big stressful thing. Uh, depending on how often you have to do it. This way, super awesome, because you just create the link, say how many times it can be downloaded, how long it can be available, and then just give them the link, and then they do everything else, and then they do everything else, and they also automatically delete it once it's you know got to the process of um, you know no longer being needed. Very cool service. I'm glad to see it's happening, and if you are interested in checking it out, I have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is Audacity 2.3.1 has been released. Now, this might be you might be wondering why am I covering a specific like point release of like as you know the point one part because it's just like a maintenance release, right? And the answer is yes and kind of no, because unfortunately the two point three point zero release, which was the first of that branch, was not available for Linux for a few months, and with the release of two point three point one, it now is. So that's great, and I did I decided to skip the release when it wasn't Linux related or compatible yet. But now that it is, let's talk about this release and what comes in it. So first of all, they have made it possible to pin the playhead, uh, which is the the dial from where you can like specify where you want to edit your audio. And you can now uh, reposition it anywhere on the timeline. And this allows users to choose where and when playback and recording starts. The pinned playhead is also is positioned in the center by default, but it's a, a nice way to be able to change it. So you can say, let's say you record something, and you want to go back and change, move the playhead, and start recording another piece. When that right right after another, another spot, you can just move the playhead and then start recording. So very cool. They also made it to be possible to enable punch and roll recording, which makes it easy to uh, correct mistakes uh, in, in the audio recording very quickly so you can go back and then get rid of the stuff get rid of what you just messed up and then re-record that uh, also it allows you to adjust the speed during playback so if you wanted to record something and then transcribe the recording uh, you can listen to it faster so that you can type uh, you know at a same similar speed of what you're saying it makes it easier to do transcriptions for um, you know podcasts or whatever uh, it also has a new feature for making a copy of your project through a lossless copy, which is very nice because it previously would have some uh, lossy uh, issues when you make a copy of the project. That's very cool to see. Uh, macros can now be extended and bound to keyboard keys, which makes it a lot easier to uh, do some like quick automated editing. Uh, and many, many more things have come with the new, this new version, as well as uh, having the option to collapse tracks uh, having a new sliding stretch option and ability, uh, increasing the legibility of the track name in the display of the timeline. So lots of cool stuff. And if you're interested in trying out Audacity, it's probably the, uh, the number one open source audio recording and editing tool. So I'll have a link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. Up next in the show is Ubuntu Touch OTA or Over the Air 8 release. And there's been uh, mostly it's, this is a maintenance improvements and uh, bug fixes and performance enhancements and stuff like that. So it's like uh, under the under the uh, under the hood back end improvements and that kind of thing. So the Morph browser has got some improvements for better performance and some more features. They have they've added an experimental system wide dark theme, which is really cool. It allows you to modify. Uh, majority of the core apps as well as the system itself so like the settings and many other apps uh, there's also a lot of apps that allow you to modify 
the layout through the like the open store. So if, if not all apps are affected by it, but a lot are. Uh, but it only can be enabled by the um, UT, the Ubuntu Touch Tweak Tool because this is a experimental feature. So if you wanted to do it, you need to install the Tweak Tool and then you can change it. Uh, but overall, it's mostly a maintenance update and just to improve the overall experience of the uh, operating system. Now, you know, maybe wondering why that I'm including a, a maintenance release. Well, that is because I'm going to be doing a Ubuntu Touch 30-day challenge. Well, at least 30 days. We'll see. But the idea is that I wanted to try out uh, Ubuntu Touch on my phone. And you can see it right here, Ubuntu Touch. And I will be using it for a little while because I had another phone that was Android, and I dropped it. It had a case on it, and I didn't drop it very far. It's like two feet or something. And somehow, the case, the, the structure of the phone, perfectly fine. No breakage on the glass or nothing. But the LCD decided to just uh, become massively broken and not worth it. So... I happened to be trying out Ubuntu Touch on uh, a phone just because, and I decided, you know what, let's just jump in completely, and let's do everything with Ubuntu Touch as the primary for 30 days. So that's my challenge, and I'll be doing that, making some videos about that, using Ubuntu Touch as the main uh, device for my phone. So far, it's actually going pretty good. There are some issues here and there, uh, which I'll talk about in a uh, potentially future episode, but mainly in a video, an episode or a, a video specifically for Ubuntu Touch in the future on this channel. So be sure to subscri subscribe to the channel. If you are subscribed to the podcast uh, uh, RSS feed for the MP3, then uh, be sure to tr subscribe for the YouTube uh, channel because that's where I'll be putting the Ubuntu Touch videos. If you're interested in checking out Ubuntu Touch, I'll have a link to it. And of course, uh, like I said, subscribe to the Tux Digital channel, or visit uh, the TuxDigital.com for updates on how the challenge is going with Ubuntu Touch. But I did drop my phone, so... So next topic. Up next in the show is the announcement for the dates of Southeast Linux Fest. Now, you might be wondering why I'm talking about an event on this show, even though I don't typically do that. And that is because the Southeast Linux Fest, or SELF, of this year is what I'll be going to, which will be June 14th through the 16th in Charlotte, North Carolina. So if you're interested, you might, and if you're in the area or close to the area and would like to come to the thing, you can, you know, meet, have a meetup as well as uh, I might be giving a talk uh, at the conference, and uh, we're going to be doing some live shows. I think that we will definitely do a live show of Destination Linux. We might do a live show of this show, of this week in Linux. I'm not sure about that one yet. It may or may not. I'll have to figure that out. See if it's like technically possible. But anyway, uh, I might be doing a talk at the conference. We'll see. I did a talk last year, and it was an experience that I likely won't ever forget. Uh, so I might just do another one this year. And hopefully less technical difficulties than last time. If you are interested, I'll have a link to the... Uh, it's it's southeastlinuxfest.org, but I'll have a link to the announcement for the dates in the show notes below, as well as uh, there should be a link to like uh, the information about where it's going to be, you know, hotels and stuff like that. So, if you're interested in checking out more about Southeast Linux Fest, I might talk about it again in the future when we get closer to the date. Uh, but anyway, I have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is Laka 2.2.2 has been released. This is actually a really interesting distro that you might want to check out because it is an open source game console operating system. It, uh, it's a distribution, Linux distribution that allows you to turn uh, small devices into a retro gaming console for uh, various different emulators using the famous RetroArch emulator. Uh, so it also supports like if you want to, if you have a Raspberry Pi, I mean a fairly 
powerful Raspberry Pi, like not a really like an old original version, but uh, one of the like one gig, like the Raspberry Pi two or Raspberry Pi three would work great for this, uh, and allows you to play various different games with emulators, um, including a lot of different like Nintendo sixty four, uh, Super Nintendo, uh, Genesis uh, stuff like that, like a bunch of cool retro games. Uh, it also has like a, plas- a PlayStation interface, so if you're familiar with using PlayStation, it, it's like that kind of layout, so it's re- it looks really nice, uh, and it's a nice, clean, modern uh, interface. Uh, the latest version of Laka 2.2.2 has updated RetroArch to 1.7.6 with a lot of important improvements on the Ozone menu. It also uh, updated the Lib Retro cores, basically all of them updated, and they've also fixed some issues with the Mupin 64 Plus emulator. And Mupin 64 Plus is the emulator for the Nintendo 64. And uh, it is a very nice emulator. Probably the best one um, for Linux. And probably the best one just in general. It works quite well. Uh, so if you're interested in checking out Laka, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Canopix 8.5.0. This is a Debian-based distribution, uh, Debian testing, and also Unstable is available if you want to use the newer graphics drivers or some updated, more up-to-date uh, desktop software. Uh, it has This particular release has 4.20 kernel. It supports multiple desktop environments. And also it has this thing that's called the Adrian Audio Desktop. It is an audio desktop reference implementation and networking environment. So it's a, I'm pretty sure Adrian is unique to Canopics, so if you want to check it out, that's uh, an option for that. Uh, it also has support for UEFI Secure Boot, and it's uh, if you've never heard of it, uh, Canopics is a bootable live system, uh, so you can put it on a CD, a DVD, a, or USB drives and boot the system directly into the full thing, so you have access to run it as a full system without installing. Uh, you can install if you want to, but it doesn't require that. It also has automatic hardware detection, so it can import uh, graphics much faster, support, and it supports many graphics cards, sound cards, um, SCSI, and uh, USB devices, and other peripherals. Um, it can be used as a production system on, this, on a desktop. Uh, you can be used as a rescue system. It can be uh, modified to a variety of different ways to do other th- other t- tasks, uh, as well as like uh, as I said, you can install it to a hard disk if you if you want to, but it's not necessary. So because it has uh, its own uh, on the fly decompression system, so you can have storage files. Um, you can have up to two gig of executable software installed on it, and over uh, nine gigs on the DVD version if you wanted to try it out. So, uh, Canopics is, um, I think I'm saying it right. I think I'm saying it because it's named after someone, uh, the guy who made it was uh, Klaus Knopper. Pretty sure that's how you say his name. Uh, mainly because I found a, this is a completely side tangent, not relevant whatsoever, but there is a candy from Germany called Knoppers. It's like a wafer, it's like a, a chocolate wafer thing, and it's awesome. And I happened to find that. I was like, hey, that sounds familiar. I wonder if that's uh, anyway. So uh, if you never had that, you should try it out. It's pretty good. But that's not related to this at all. So I'm going to move on to the next topic. But if you want to learn more about Canopics, I'll have a link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is also brought to you by the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt. It's the shirt I made to celebrate the proliferation of Linux. The concept of the design has tux blended into the background to convey the message, even if you aren't aware that Linux is there, it probably is. The shirt is available for shipping from North America and from Europe. You can go to tuxdigital.com slash linuxeverywhere for shipping inside of North America or go to tuxdigital.com slash linuxeverywhereeu for shipping inside of Europe. Up next in the show is some good news from the network manager. Uh, the latest release says that WireGuard has been added to support inside of Network Manager. So Network Manager provides a de facto standard API for configuring networking on the host. It uh, This allows different tools to integrate uh, and, and interoperate. So uh, support for various different tools like uh, uh, c- uh, command line tools or GUI tools and all kinds of things. So all these different components uh, now have the possibility of making use of the API for configuring WireGuard. 
which is very cool because WireGuard is a VPN uh, protocol that is very useful. It is very user friendly. It's uh, very consistent and it's also very uh, good performance. Um, one of the advantages for the end user is that this having it built into the network manager makes it possible for a GUI uh, of WireGuard to be pretty reasonably made in the future. Uh, because it is kind, it's it's very it's very nice. WireGuard WireGuard is a very nice VPN to set up, but it does have a barrier to entry to learn how to use. Uh, but once you use it, it's very it's, it's simple in comparison to other VPN approaches as far as like command line stuff. Uh, it's like the protocols itself. Now it's not necessarily easier than uh, you know various VPN services that have their own install scripts or whatever. But uh, overall, it's a nice protocol. So it also has support for. Uh, simultaneous authentication of equals for 802.11 meshing and WPA3 personal uh, wireless uh, Wi-Fi authentication. And, and this, this release also has support for uh, Wi-Fi direct connections and Wi-Fi P2P uh, establish, uh, this, establishing those types of connections. So if you're interested in trying out more about uh, WireGuard or Network Manager, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Fighter 0.18 was released this week, and Fighter is an interesting project because it's a project that allows other projects to get feedback. It allows you to collect and prioritize product feedback or project feedback that can help you focus on building the right like software or whatever kind of product you want. Uh, the interesting thing is that it's it's a way to uh, get feedback from customers or from users to see what is improved, like what they want improved or what you know, benefits that they want. It's kind of like uh, if you ever heard of user voice, it's kind of similar to that, but in an open source approach, people can suggest, make suggestions, and people can then vote on the benefits of what they think about the, those suggestions. Um, so anyway, Fighter is an open source service uh, or open source project for that type of thing. Now they actually have a premium service where they host it themselves, and you, rather than you host it. Uh, but the weird thing is, is that it's currently in a trial period or an open trial period. So if you wanted to try that out, it's free right now. Uh, but they do have a price listed that what it will be in the future, which is very nice because a lot of times they'll say it's free right now, but it will not tell you what it is, and then it turns out it's expensive. They tell you what it is, and it's not that bad. So. Uh, but if you wanted to self-host it, that will always be free because it is an open platform. Uh, but anyway, this latest version has improvements to the ability for uh, people to attach images to their comments. So if you make a post and make or make comments, that people can attach images for like demonstrations of what they would think that would be improvements or uh, various different other things. Uh, they've also improved the SEO. So... Um, it's really interesting because they say if for, if you're new to Fighter, it's important to know that Fighter is a client-side rendered application built with React. When a search engine like Google or Bing fetches a page served by Fighter, they get minimal HTML content and some JSON metadata, also some JavaScript files. So it's uh, and because that because it's done that way, rendering on the client side means that th that content could change and be dynamic on for the client but for search engines it's not the best option rather than uh, server side rendering would be much better because it's uh, it, it allows it to see all of the content so they're doing a dynamic rendering process that's experimental for serving the content from the server which is a much better approach as far as SEO goes so this is a improvement that will be very beneficial for projects who would like to use the suggestions and comments and stuff as a part of their SEO work or SEO campaigns I guess but anyway uh, if you are interested in checking out fighter I'll have a link to it in the show notes up next in the show is the 1.2 release of the TLP which is a laptop uh, battery optimization uh, uh, package for Linux. It's been uh, a, over uh, over a year's worth of development to release this new version, and there's quite a few things that have been added to this release, which is pretty cool. So if you're not aware, TLP is a program that provides laptop battery optimization to get the most battery life you can from your Linux machine. The great thing about TLP is that you can install it and also not even worry about it. You just install it, run it, and it works. And it saves you a decent amount of percentage for the, uh, the battery uh, life period or lifespan. You can uh, configure it 
to your liking as well. So if you wanted to change it to do more optimizations or change how it optimizes, you can do so, but you don't have to, which is a really cool benefit to it. So if you just want to install it and run it, you're pretty much good to go there. And you'll save anywhere between 20 to 40%, uh, not save, but you'll improve your battery life between 20 to 40% based on how you set up the configurations. Um, so anyway, this is, uh, this tool de uh, detects when your laptop is running on uh, like AC or uh, battery and applies various settings like scaling the processor frequency, setting the disk APM, spin down timeout, uh, setting Wi-Fi to be power saving mode, enabling or disabling various different radio integrated radio devices and many more things. So um, it's if you are a laptop user and you have, you know, actually whether you have good battery or not, it'll probably improve it either way. So you might want to check it out. This latest version of 1.2 adds support for NVMe drives and uh, removable drives. It also creates a manual mode so you can keep the uh, TLP power settings uh, until reboot or until the user returns back to the TLP starting. Uh, it makes you allow, allows you to frequency, uh, limit the frequencies for Intel GPU stuff. So you can now set the Intel GPU maximum and minimum boost frequency. Uh, it has um, some improvements to uh, the USB exclude scanners may, uh, managed by the libsane package from auto suspend uh, and many more other things, uh, sp even some specific things for like ThinkPad batteries and other things. So if you want to find out more or try out TLP, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of 19.0 for the Mesa drivers. The Mesa drivers are very, very important. They are one of the most important things for um, AMD users, for example, because you need to have the latest version of Mesa and the latest version of the kernel to have the best up-to-date features for AMD hardware. So this actually improves, has many improvements to the open source Vulkan and OpenGL drivers. It has improved the uh, features for having the uh, Radeon SI FreeSync and Adaptive Sync features. Now this is actually very important because it improves the just the performance of your uh, the display it also has uh, you know, nice improvements to like t uh, uh, tear free experience and it's all kinds of stuff. Um, AMD Zen Thread has and it had optimizations for, for it. There's various new OpenGL extensions. The Vega Rad V primitive binning is enabled by default now, and the, there's a variety of performance improvements and other uh, OpenGL Vulkan driver tuning stuff such as Intel ANV transform feedback support in their Vulkan driver. And there's been some other Intel Vulkan driver improvements, including uh, conditional rendering, NR, NIR caching, and other new extensions. Uh, Intel's current OpenGPL driver, meanwhile, picked up uh, better KHR debug support for the improved shader debugging and many more. So soft FP64 slash int64 was merged for helping graphic drivers that lack AM ARB GPU shader FP64 for their hardware to expose it in this software-admitted manner for with shaders. So this is a nice improvement for Intel drivers because they support uh, they support this while the R600G or other drivers do not yet. So this is very important and uh, especially like uh, as far as an AMD user now that the FreeSync and Adaptive Sync bits now being paired with the AMD GPU from the Linux 5.0 kernel this has a lot of potential to make a much better experience for AMD users. I don't have these versions yet, but I look forward to trying them out in the future. So if you want to find out more about uh, the Mesa 19.0 release, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show, Linux Foundation has announced the Community Bridge platform. They announced this new initiative called the Community Bridge. Its purpose is to help uh, with funding and support for open source developers. It includes some security-related services and a means for connecting developers with mentors. Uh, the program is in an early access mode for now. It's kind of similar to the Apache Software Foundation, the Free Software um, Foundation, the GNOME Foundation, the Open Source Initiative, the Software in the Public Interest, and the Software Freedom Conservancy uh, stuff but it's also slightly different as well uh, but the is interesting is because the software freedom conservancy has done a response to this release because people will ask them what is their opinion of this latest information from the linux foundation and uh, this is what they had to say they say that the ambitious platform that promises a self-service system to handle finances address security uh, address security issues 
uh, manage CLAs, license compliance, and also bring mentorships to projects. So they're saying it's very ambitious, but there's some issues. So the first issue, they say, is the first big, huge issue, uh, it, or the first, not issue, but difference between what they do and what this is, is the first huge difference and the biggest disappointment for the entire FOSS community, these are their words, is that uh, Linux Foundation's Community Bridge is a proprietary software system. Uh, the four point two, the section 4.2 of their platform use agreement requires those who sign up for this platform to agree to a proprietary software license. And Linux Foundation has remained silent about the proprietary nature of the platform in its explanatory materials. They say the second difference is that the Linux Foundation is not a charity, but a trade organization or trade association uh, designed to serve the common business interest of its paid members. Uh, designed to serve uh, community business interest and its paid members who control its board of directors. This means that donations made to projects through their system will not be tax deductible in the USA and that, mo and that the money can be used in ways that do not necessarily benefit the public good. For some projects this may, be well, uh, may well be an advantage. Not all FOSS projects operate in the public good, but they say we believe uh, Charitable commitment remains a huge benefit of joining a fiscal sponsor like the Conservancy or the FSF or the GF or the SPI. While charitable affiliations means they are more constrained on how projects can spend their funds, as the projects must show that their spending serves the public benefit. So there are some benefits to this being a trade association and also some negatives to it. However, uh, it is worth noting that even if they were a trade association, there's no reason why they can't open source the platform that they created. Um, so they could still have an open platform while still being a trade association. Um, but it's an interesting topic because the Software Freedoms Conservancy's uh, article or um, op-ed, I guess, about this is a uh, very good read. So I'll have a link to the notif the link the announcement from the Linux Foundation, as well as a link to the Software Freedom Conservancy's response to it, because it is definitely interesting. So if you'd like to learn more, I'll have a link to those in the show notes. So we actually are having an interesting conversation on the live stream regarding this uh, to this topic for the Linux Foundation Community Bridge. Uh, there was some confusion about like what the Linux Foundation has regarding the, what how influence it has regarding the kernel. And the answer to that is basically none. Um, so I wanted to make a quick correction, or not a correction, but a quick statement regarding the Linux Foundation's integration with the kernel. Now, Linus is is paid by the Linux Foundation as a for a salary for work on the kernel. However, the Linux Foundation does not control what is done in the kernel in any way at all. So they basically pay Linus to work on the kernel because it's in their best interest, and it's in the best interest of the companies who are on the board to do so. But they have no actual control over what Linux does, or what Linux does in the kernel, or what Linux does in general. They can make submissions to like, hey, this would be great to have this as a feature, or something like that. But they don't have any actual control over the kernel. So the concern about the proprietary system that they created for this uh, this service that they're going to be making, uh, the community bridge, has nothing to do with the kernel itself. And there's no issue whether you know Linux Foundation has proprietary software in comparison to what's going on with the kernel. So there's no nothing to worry about there. Linux kernel is totally fine. Linux Foundation basically doesn't do anything about it. Um, so yeah, there you go. I just want to make sure that's a quick, that statement was in there because there might be some confusion whether like how, like what the Linux Foundation has to do with the kernel, which is uh, not much. Up next in the show is some interesting news from a Debian package maintainer who's decided to step down. Michael Stapleberg, I'm not really sure how to say that name. Sorry about that if I butchered it. Uh, he's a Debian package or was a Debian package manager for over 10 years and is also the writer of the i3 tiling manager. He's also developed a code search engine called the Debian Code Search, uh, the NetSplit-free package, and also a developer for Robust IRC. And he's decided to step away from Debian due to some frustrations he's, ha he's had with the internal processes of the distribution. He says that there's um, issues of old infrastructure. 
Uh, in a recent post on his website, he details the specific reasons why he's winding down his involvement in the project after a decade. It's definitely worth reading, uh, though uh, I'm not going to cover everything that he talks about in there because there's you know some things that you know you, you should ch uh, check out because he has like long explanations of why he doesn't like these certain things. Uh, but we, I will cover some highlights in this particular uh, episode. He says that any changes that is put uh, that is made is put on the backs of package managers or package maintainers to fix or work around versus the responsibility of the people who put or at least in part put the, or the team who made the change. So if you make a change, they make the maintainers have to compensate for whatever that change is rather than having like a collaborative effort to do that together. Uh, they, he also says the lack of tools for large changes are, or maybe even the, they, they don't have tools for these big changes and they also don't have um, fast, uh, have an infrastructure for fast changes. They have these, he says they're painfully slow. Um, he says, uh, culturally, reviews and reactions are slow. There are no deadlines, and I literally sometimes get emails notifying me that a patch I sent out years ago is now merged. That can definitely be frustrating, so I can understand why that would be a problem. Uh, I'm not going to go into like much detail about this, because what's actually interesting is if you want to check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, which will is not out yet, but it will be out soon, within a couple days, in that episode, we talk about this particular topic as well in a much more in-depth approach as far as like how Debian um, does certain things, is how they do their documentation, and how it could be frustrating for a developer or a contributor, uh, even users as well. And uh, it's a very interesting conversation we had, so I would say check that out for a much more in-depth uh, discussion around this topic. Uh, but if you'd like to learn more or read the article from Michael Stapleberg, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. So up next in the show is a correction from a previous topic that we covered last week regarding Skype for Web, and that there was a lot of articles from ZDNet and a variety of different Linux-based uh, news sites talking about how Skype for Web is no longer supporting Linux. And that stuff was based on a post on the blog for the Skype blog talking about their requirements uh, because in their post they said that you can now enjoy our latest features from any desktop Provided it's Windows 10 or Mac OS 10, you know, with the latest versions of Google Chrome or Microsoft Edge. Now, that made people think that it was no longer being supported on Linux, and I did mention it in the show that it's not supported on Linux. So the correction is that it does support Linux, sort of, kind of, um, because it still has a limitation of what browser you're using. Now, I did some testing on Chromium, and it didn't work that well. If you change the user agent on Firefox, it does kind of work in some cases, and also some APIs are not available, so certain things are kind of weird, like the video conference calls and stuff like that. I also did some testing in Vivaldi, and it didn't work at all, and the same thing with other browsers. However, Google Chrome does work. So technically, if you were to use that one browser, you could use the Skype for Web on Linux. Now... It's unfortunate uh, that this uh, I didn't actually have the time to test that browser because I didn't have Google Chrome installed, and I tested on the other browsers, and turns out I was wrong because those browsers don't work, but that one does, so technically it does support Linux. However, it's not really supporting Linux when you... It's not really supporting technically anything if it only supports one browser. So, meh. But at the same time, I did mention in the previous episode that you could use the Skype the desktop, Linux desktop client with, because they also have a snap for it and there's other ways. So it's not necessarily that you have to use Skype for web or anything. It's just if you wanted to, you would need Google Chrome to do so. So slight correction, but still, meh, it's Skype. So let's move on. Up next in the show is some interesting Humble Bundles are out. Uh, first up, we got some Linux games. And also we got some Linux books, as well as some uh, another interesting book we'll get to in a bit. Or set of books, I guess. Bundle of books. That makes more sense. Anyway, so the first up is the strategy, the Humble Strategy Bundle. And it has a lot of Linux games. I think almost all except for two are Linux-based. And one of the two is available on Proton. But uh, these games include uh, Dungeons 3, Stellaris, Plague Inc., uh, Plague Inc. Evolved, Throne of Lies, the online game of deceit. 
that's fun. Um, the Nietzsche game is a genetic survival game. And also, uh, Sid Meier's Civilization VI is available in this bundle. So if you're interested to check that out, I have a link in the show notes. Uh, as well as the Linux Books bundle, which is actually a like a books about how to learn uh, various different things in Linux, such as the beginner's Linux programming, uh, Linux essentials, shell scripting, expert recipes for Linux bash, and more. Uh, Linux server security uh, is called Linux security hack and defend is the name of the book. Also, uh, assembly language step-by-step programming for Linux. So there's a lot of interesting books for this uh, pre- presented by Wiley Books. Uh, I'll have a link to that bundle as well. Now, another one is just... It's just weird, so I wanted to cover it. It's called Eat Like a Geek Books. That's the name of the bundle. Eat Like a Geek. They have Magic of Mini Pies book, the Salvage Chef Cookbook, as in what, like whatever you have in the fridge or whatever, and they also have Minecrafter's Cookbook, whatever that means. So if you're interested in checking out any of these bundles, I'll have a link to all three of them in the show notes. And just a quick note, if you're not aware, the these links are affiliate links, so if you do decide to purchase the bundles, I would appreciate you use the link in the show notes or in the video description for the, for the YouTube channel because the links give a small percentage of the proceeds from the purchase to the Tux Digital channel and this show. So I would appreciate it very much if you were to, do, if you were to use those links. So anyway, if you're, if you're interested in checking out the, these bundles, I'll have a link to them in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like to submit some good news to the show, then you can visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, this show is live usually every Saturday. Uh, not this time, because this was Sunday, but either way. Uh, you can join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. And if you'd like to get updated, you can join the Tux Digital uh, Telegram group by going to tuxdigital.com slash telegram. Or you can follow the show uh, on Twitter at This Week in Linux or at tuxdigitalcom or at Michael Tanell. Any of those options is where I, sh- I tweet out when we're going to go live because it, it changes every once in a while. But anyway, thanks again for watching the show. And uh, I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital. As always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.